0: Welcome to the Southcrest Live Podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. God's love is greater still. There's that word still again. He's still on the throne. And God is still God. If you have your Bibles, open them to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses, and so I want to begin reading in verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to understand just how important it is to be part of your church. Thank you for Jesus who gave his life for the church. And we are the bride of Christ, we know that. Would you encourage people today? And Lord, would you please let it be soon when we can meet together again as a body of believers. But right now we ask that you speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. A couple of guys, church members, went fishing one Sunday morning. And while they were out fishing, they heard a church bell ring way off in the distance. And one of them said, I don't really feel exactly right fishing on Sunday. We, we probably really ought to be in church. And the other guy said, well, I couldn't go anyway because my wife is at home sick in bed. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, there weren't any Baptist churches or Methodist churches or Presbyterian or Catholic churches. There were only Jesus churches. Most churches, real churches that is, start out as Jesus churches. They're about Jesus Christ, but somewhere along the way they can lose their focus. And Paul shows his concern for this church and what it should be doing in these first five verses. And so I want us to look for a moment about being a church and what it means. Well, first, I want you to notice the devotion that Paul had for the church. in verse one. He said, "I have this great conflict for you." Now I want to ask you something. Do you love your church? Now, if you go to Southcrest, I'm going to say that 99.9 percent of you love your church. You may not even be in a church today today as you're listening, And, and the fact is that you, you had a bad experience in church. Paul had never been to Colossi. They had never seen his face. He was concerned about them and about 10 miles away from in Laodicea. He was concerned about the, the people in that church. And yet he never had been there. He used the word, I have a great conflict. And that word conflict is the same word used as an athlete that is in a contest where he strains every part of his body to try to meet the demands of that contest. And his struggle was not physical here, but it was spiritual He wanted to pray and write a letter of encouragement. Why would Paul even care about a church he'd never been to? I'll tell you why. It's because the church is more than an organization. The church is the body of Christ. It is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and representative of Christ in the world. We are the representation of Jesus in the world. Today, there are a lot of people who have a careless attitude about church membership. It's sad. People are dying all around the world when they follow Jesus Christ and unite with a little church. And yet, the prevalent attitude in our country toward the church, in most cases, is pretty nonchalant. Many are unconcerned about what it means to be part of a church. They give no thought to the spiritual condition of the church. And as long as there's plenty of activities and plenty of social activities, and if you're in a Baptist church, as long as there's plenty of food, they're going to participate. But this pandemic, which has kept us from attending church services, doesn't keep us from being the church, but it's kept us from attending the church services It's reminded us how sweet it is when we gather together. Do you love the church? Do you love his church? Do you really? You see, if you love Jesus, you're going to love his church because it's his body. It's the bride of Christ. Paul shows his devotion, his love for the church, even though he'd never been there. But then he goes into his desire For the church and what it should be. So, notice in verses two and three the desire of the church. First thing we should notice about Paul's goal for the church is what's not on his list. If we were to try to describe a strong, mature, thriving church, what would we include? How do you know you're in a good church? Well, we would say stuff like, well, it's got diverse programs, it's got spacious buildings, got plenty of parking, has a large attendance in worship or a certain style of worship. Now, that's what growth experts would tell you as to leading to a successful ministry. But do you know what? The problem with that is, is that the focus is entirely external. We look at the external things, Paul focuses on the internal. So, we need to look at the way we define success when it comes to the church, the several characteristics here. First of all, the church should be a place of strengthening support. Verse 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged. That word encourage is the same word as sometimes translated Holy Spirit as part of the derivative of that word. It means to be called alongside of. And it has a wide range of meanings. It could also mean strengthen because of the Colossians were being beset by false teachers and they needed strengthening rather than comfort The Bible teaches one of the main reasons why Christians should gather together is to encourage and strengthen, build up one another. We ought to be each other's cheerleaders. It's not hard for us to picture somebody carrying a heavy load or trying to move a heavy object alone and they call for help. And a person comes alongside them and helps them move it, helps ease the strain, and and encouragement carries the same idea. You come alongside someone to not only comfort them, but to strengthen them and to encourage them. Paul told the Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. First Thessalonians 5.11. The only verse in the New Testament addressing the importance of church attendance is Hebrews. 1025. I want to read it from the message. Now, I know it's a paraphrase. Uh, Please don't let the message be the only Bible you have. It's a paraphrase of an English translation. But I want to read it because it really speaks clearly Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging one another, not avoiding worshiping together as some people do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. So What is that big day? The big day is the second coming of Jesus. And as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Christ, we ought to be encouraging one another and doing a better job of encouraging one another. Folks, let me tell you something, there's great power when you encourage people. I would dare say that most of you know who Abraham Lincoln was, 16th President of the United States, and we consider him, most people consider him a great president. President Lincoln was prone though, you don't know this, you read one of his biographies, He was prone to severe depression, sometimes causing him to stay in bed days at a time. He struggled with self-esteem and confidence all his life. Now, we're familiar with April 14th, 1865 when President Lincoln attended a play at Ford's Theater and John Wilkes Booth was waiting outside his box and at a precise moment when the audience roared with laughter at one of the funniest lines in the play, Booth rushed in and shot the president in the back of the head. President Lincoln was carried across the street to a boarding house where he died a few hours later. We all know about his assassination, But what many people don't know is what he was carrying in his pockets the night he was shot. In fact, it wasn't revealed until 1976 publicly. The items items that were in his pocket are now on display at the Library of Congress. And on the night that he was shot, he had a handkerchief, two pairs of reading glasses, a spectacles case... A watch fob, and a pocket knife. The only money he had in his pocket was a $5 bill of Confederate money. But there were also a few newspaper clippings. One of them had so many creases in it, it was obvious that Lincoln had read and reread it many times. And that newspaper article that had all the creases in it was an article about a speech given by an Englishman named John Bright who said, and I quote, Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest men of all time. Now, a lot of us would agree with that assessment, but, but at the time that Lincoln was president, he presided over a deeply divided nation. He was the target of frequent attacks by the press. Surprise, surprise, huh? The vast majority of newspaper articles about the president were harsh and critical. He was so unpopular that there are accounts of people cheering when they heard of his death. Now, why do you think he kept an article in his pocket and read it over and over again? Very well, it may have been because he was prone to depression, and whenever he read that article, it encouraged his heart. There were times when his heart was broken because of the divided nation and thousands of young men were losing their lives on the battlefields. And you can just see him with his head in his hands and he bowed under the weight of leadership. Taking out that article and reading those words, Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest men of all time. That should serve as a lesson of encouragement. You may not write a newsletter or a newspaper article, but you can encourage somebody, you can write a card. And many of you write cards to me from time to time. God always has a way of bringing those at a good time and other staff members. And you have friends and neighbors, you have Sunday school teachers and deacons and leaders and choir people and instrumentalists, you have all kinds of leaders in the church. Folks, it doesn't matter if you serve in a position in the church, everyone needs encouragement. And the church ought to be the place where you find a little bit of it. The church also is a place of strong solidarity, Paul goes on to say, being knit together in love. And the picture of that is, is that of a rope. You know, a rope is made up of smaller twine that's been all intertwined and connected together. Or it's also the picture of taking all of those strands of thread and making a garment. And one of the greatest blessings of a church is that the members open their arms wide and they include everyone who comes to Christ. A church is not a showcase for shiny saints. It is a hospital for sick sinners. You are welcome here. If you are perfect, you are not welcome here because we don't want to ruin our record here. There are no perfect people here. Just forgiven. We're we're supposed to be a safe harbor for the shipwrecked lives that are wandering around. When you see somebody new at church, are you inclusive or are you exclusive? There are plenty of people who are lonely. Some of them are angry. Some of them are hard to love. But we must open our arms and express the love of Jesus. You see, a church is a place where we treasure each other. We seek gifts and abilities rather than faults and failures. We celebrate the gifts and blessings of others without feeling resentment. We rally around each other in times of sadness and loss. We allow people to have bad days. We're quick to forgive. We, are, we act in kindness toward each other. We defend each other. We're willing to do things differently than we would necessarily choose for the honor of Christ. A church is a place where there is strong solidarity. A teenager came home one night, after, actually came home from choir practice early. His dad said, what brings you back so soon? Because he was thinking, he's never been early from anything. And the teenager said, well, we had to call off choir practice for the week. The organist and the choir director got in a terrible argument about how to sing Love Divine. So we quit for the night. Sometimes we have that, don't we? There are all kinds of glue today. I, I did a little research, not much, but the first thing that came up it said 16 kinds of glue. Have you ever thought about it? There's glue for paper. There's glue for wood. There's glue for fabric. There's glue for gorillas. I don't know what you have to glue, glue a gorilla for. I've just seen if you're awake there's multi-purpose glue there's super glue there are hot glue guns so what kind of glue helps a church stick together be knit together I'll tell you what it is it's love of Christ Colossians 3.14 says but above all these things put on love which is the bond of perfection of maturity Now, we live in a day when individualism is admired. That's the American spirit. Chart your own course. Do your own thing. You don't need anybody else. But folks, I want to tell you, that's not the Christian way. The encouragement needed by the Colossians was going to come through their relationships with one another in the church, and the foundation of it was that they'd been knit together in love. And that phrase, knit together, also translates to instruct and to teach Each other. He refers to an ongoing relationship where others are involved in you learning the scripture. One of the professors at Southwestern when I was there was Curtis Vaughn. He has a commentary on Colossians, and in it, he says this phrase suggests that God's revelation in Christ cannot be properly understood in isolation from the fellowship of other Christians. Paul stressed the connectedness of the church. He said the, the devil's going to try and isolate you. The false teachers and intruders of Colossae that were coming in could not come into the whole congregation and try to teach their heretical beliefs. No, they had to kind of separate you and then talk to you individually by yourself. You you see those uh, shows on television um, when the predators are chasing the the lunch or dinner, whatever they're going to have, and they try to isolate an animal from the herd. Well, the same is true with all of these who have this erroneous teaching, nobody's going to step up in front of Southcrest and try to teach you something, but they will isolate you. And when they isolate you, then they can begin to convince you. In fact, he says he even uses the term persuasive words. There's a direct link. Listen to this there's a direct link in being involved with a body of believers and growing in maturity in Christ and experiencing all that Christ has. Just like my hand, my, this hand is useless if it's detached from the body. Well, a person detached from the church, detached from the body of believers, detached from a bunch of sinners who've been forgiven and who are growing in Christ, when you detach them, Satan knows that and he'll do everything in his power, he will do everything in his power to keep you from fellowshipping with other believers. And so when people begin to distance themselves from faithfully sitting under the teaching and preaching of God's word and having the fellowship of other believers, they inevitably begin to slip into some strange beliefs. They develop in the coldness in their Christianity. They don't encourage other Christians. They're not a clear witness to unbelievers. They're just sort of out there. And so church is a place of imperfect people who will offend you at times. That's why we bestow grace upon one another. That's why we forgive one another. But what knits us together is the word of God and the love of Jesus. A place is also, a church is also a place of spiritual security and soundness. Paul uses a couple of words here that ought to get your attention. Riches and treasures. He wanted the church at Colossae to be wealthy. And maybe we could gain a crowd that way. The Lord wants you to be wealthy. Now, I'm not one of those health and wealth preachers who teach that if you trust God, you'll never be sick and you'll have a million dollars by Tuesday. But I do believe God wants all his children to be rich in the true source of riches. People who are rich by God's calculation are those who have a deep knowledge of his word and the assurance of their relationship with him. Because folks, that's all you're going to take with you when you leave is your relationship with Jesus Christ or he's going to take you with him and your knowledge of the word full assurance comes by understanding the deep things of God notice he uses the word understanding that attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God Both of the Father and of Christ. The word understanding there means putting together facts and truths in such a way that you have a promising, assuring conclusion can be drawn from that. He's talking about understanding your relationship with Jesus Christ. It it brings assurance, blessed assurance. We ought to sing about that sometime. If you tuned in late, you missed that song, Blessed Assurance. How do you have it? How do you have assurance? First, you involve yourself grasping the gospel. You realize you were separated. You realize the grace of God. You you realize the redemption that was bought by Jesus. You realize the, the repentance of your own life and the forgiveness that comes. You realize how you were justified, made right with God. You realize sanctification. You begin to see your growth. If you're struggling with assurance today, you need to immerse yourself in the gospel. Study it, look at it, think upon it. Feed your soul upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It fills that emptiness. Jesus Christ can only fill that emptiness that's in your heart and in your life. And second, the gospel is truth that is experienced. To whom or what are you looking for your salvation? Those of you who are watching me today, what are you depending upon to go to heaven? What are you depending upon to be saved? Are you relying upon Jesus Christ alone? If you are, that's enough. You got to ask yourself, are there evidences in my life that I've been born again? If you don't, read 1 John. 1 John says there's three main things that show that you've been born again. First of all, you don't have a a, a habit, a habitual habit of continuing to sin. You're not going to be characterized by sin. You're also going to love the Word of God, and you're also going to love His people. The church. The church. Do you have the witness of the Holy Spirit confirming that you're a child of God? Then study Romans 8 to help you think upon that reality. You see, in Jesus, we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the treasure, we're the containers. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. All of us are like different vessels. We're like jars of clay. I had somebody tell me one time, says, yeah, you're a cracked pot. (laughs) And I probably am. All of us are cracked somewhere. But the purpose of a vessel is to contain something. You have vessels at home. You ladies in your kitchen, you've got all kinds of vessels that hold food and cook food. The value's not in the vessel. The value is what's in it. The focus is not the container, but the treasure inside. Our value is who lives inside us, Jesus Christ. Now the word knowledge Actually, is the translation knowledge upon knowledge or a deep knowledge? All heresies, all false teaching, people will not fall for false teaching unless they have an ignorance of Jesus Christ. And all heresies that use the word Jesus either misunderstand or falsely teach about his humanity or his deity, or both. You cannot grow deep in the knowledge of Jesus without a proper relationship with him because in it, Christ is our wisdom and knowledge. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never received Jesus, You're not going to understand this understanding and knowledge. You see, the richest people on this earth are not people who have big fat bank accounts. They are people who have a relationship with God and know who they are and know where they're going and their their knowledge and understanding is all in Jesus. Back in the Roman days, the Roman Empire, a certain wealthy senator became estranged from his son. They didn't speak anymore. And when the senator died unexpectedly, his will was opened and it read, because my son does not appreciate what I've done, I leave all of my worldly possessions to my loyal slave, Marcellus. However, because I am a man of grace, I bequeath to my son one of my possessions of his choosing. The testator of the will said, sorry, you can only take one of your dad's possessions. Which will it be? And the son said, I'll take Marcellus. You see, by taking Marcellus, he got everything else. Well, I want you to know if you have Christ, you have all the wisdom and knowledge you will ever need to live life successfully. For it's all in Christ. When you got him, you got it all. There's an old song that goes like this. You can go to church, you can go to your church, you can go to your school, but if you ain't got Jesus, you're an educated fool. Everything you need to live for God is found in Christ. He is the treasure. He... Chuck Swindoll gives us some benefits of being spiritually informed. He said, first of all, knowledge gives substance to faith. Those who do not know the truth, they're forced to rely on emotion, feelings, or someone else's opinion, or a book, or a tradition, or some other empty humanistic hope. Their faith lacks substance. Knowledge stabilizes during times of testing. When we know God's promises, we have something to hold on to in times of struggle. Knowledge enables us to handle the Bible accurately. The more we know the Bible, the better and more accurately we're able to interpret it. We get better and better at letting the Bible form our values rather than using the Bible to validate our opinions. Knowledge equips us to detect and confront error. You have, no, you have to know the truth before you can detect error. And knowledge makes us confident in our daily walk. The better we know the Lord and the more fully we understand the salvation God offers, the more confident we are in the position in Christ. A good foundation of spiritual truth filters out our fears and superstitions. God's word silences the false and destructive voices. And Paul Paul even warned Timothy, and he said, In the last days, the unsaved, in 2 Timothy 3, 7, will always... Be learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. We live in a world where information is readily available. Mercy. Well, you just pick up your phone and you ask Siri or you ask Alexa or whoever. But I want to tell you something. They don't ever bring you to Jesus Knowledge, information is not enough. You seek out the truth and acknowledge it and commit yourself to it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When you have Jesus, you have it all. God does not want you to wonder about your salvation. He does not want you to say, well, I hope it all works out. I hope, I hope, I hope. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. It's a Church teaches Jesus. And when your life is in Jesus, you have security. The issue is trust. Do you trust Jesus? He's either who he says he is or he's the greatest phony that's ever lived. He's God. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Godhead. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You trust in Jesus. And the church lifts up Jesus. Paul then mentions the danger facing the church in verse 4. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. The word deceive. Refers to someone using what seems to be good or rational or even reasonable arguments to draw conclusions, but usually they're the wrong conclusions. Usually people like this proof text. Now what I mean by that is you can find one verse and try to proof text it, take it out by itself, but the problem with that is you're not interpreting the scripture right. Right? Because you have to look at the context, you have to look at who it was written to, you have to look at the time frame, and you have to say, God, is there something in there that's still relevant today? And God's word still is relevant, but you have to be careful. But most people who have false teaching usually pick one, two, or three verses and they pull it out of context. They seem to appear valid because they've, Use some scripture. Let me tell you something. Even cults today use the name of Jesus and they will pull some scripture out of context. We live in a day when there's counterfeits and imitations all around us. We're used to being deceived, we don't even think about it anymore. I mean, they make plastic look like metal today and steel. Flowers that look real, but they're not real. We're daily touching things that they're limitations, they're their imitations, I should say. And added to the delusion of what appears rational, Paul says, not only that, but they are persuasive. It means the ability to talk to someone about something even though it's based on the wrong conclusions. You ever met any people like that? They can sell ice cubes to the Eskimos. They can persuade you to do something. That's where many believers today fall by the wayside. Well, they seem to be. I felt like what they told me was the truth. So how are you going to know if it's the truth? I would dare say that most everybody who hears me talking has a Bible. Open your Bible. Compare it to the truth. If you don't have a Bible, I'll give you one. Seriously. Seriously compare it to the truth. you got to be careful. There's a lot of people on the airwaves today who will make you think that all you got to do is this and sow a seed here and you're going to be wealthy by Tuesday. You can be healed of anything. I believe God heals. I pray for God to heal, but I do not believe that you can be healed at any time you wanna be healed. That's not even biblical. I I better not get going too far down the road. There are, my my blood pressure will get too high. Check out what you've been told by the scripture. Don't be scammed. I mean, we're used to scams, aren't you? I mean, you ever get those phone calls? You're in trouble with the IRS. You're gonna be arrested if you don't send us some money. Give us Walmart gift cards. As far as I know, the IRS doesn't need Walmart gift cards. Or uh, we've, your, your computer has a virus. How do you know? You don't even know what kind of computer I have. There's only two kinds, Apple or PCs, and so they're gonna, or Windows, they're going to tell you, you've been scammed. It's easy. Don't be scammed when it comes to the Word of God. But I also want you to notice that Paul also is delighted for the church. He's physically a 1,000 miles away from them and never been there, but he's still spiritually connected with them. The same Christ who lives in the Colossians, the Holy Spirit lives in Paul, who's in prison in Rome. Paul recognizes the spiritual connection and he prays for them. Epaphras brought a good report of the church and Paul prays and he actually wants to see them one day, but he, but he can almost visually see them standing strong in the faith because of the report of Epaphras. In 1 Corinthians, he uses this term, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And when he says in verse five, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit. Now, now, how many times have you said because you weren't coming to a meeting? Well, I won't be with you there, but I'll be with you in spirit. Well, that didn't make any sense. Your spirit doesn't go to a meeting. What he's saying here is, my spirit, the Holy, and with the Holy Spirit in my spirit, bears witness with your spirit. Even though I'm a thousand miles away from you, I still believe in the same Jesus you believe in. In fact, he praises them for two things. First is their systematic behavior. The word good order, verse five. Yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. The good order is a a rare Greek word. It's used for discipline. It's used one other time in 1 Corinthians 14.40, but the Corinthians were anything but disciplined. In fact, that's why he writes the letter to the Corinthians to try to get them back in order. Colossian church was in order. They had it, and Paul found great joy. We might paraphrase it this way. You are living the way you're supposed to be living as Christians They were giving attention to their spiritual lives and the graces which are necessary for growth and and spiritual walk and maintenance. Paul rejoiced in their systematic behavior. There are a lot of you who've gotten turned off by the church because you haven't seen systematic behavior from Christians. Well, don't put your eyes on them. Put them on Jesus. Folks, our goal ought to be I want to live for Christ in such a way that I bring honor to him, I bring honor to my church, or to the Lord's church, it's not our church. But he also praises them for their steadfast belief. The word steadfastness means the church was strong, firm, solid, stable concerning the faith in Christ. It pictures a people who are anchored in the truth of Christ and him crucified. Now they were surrounded by false teachers who were trying to delude their people or bring them out or break them. They still trusted in Christ without retreating. The word steadfastness is actually the opposite of trendy or flashy or sensational. Stable churches do not chase after the latest fad or church growth fad. They don't keep people hyped up. They don't promote the latest self-help insights on how you can have a successful life or a marriage or career. Now, the word of God will teach you those things. Stable churches, frankly, some people think are boring because they just keep teaching about Jesus and keep teaching the Word of God. We're to be stable in our faith in Christ. The biblical gospel is a sure foundation to guard us from spiritual deception. Don't let anyone ever tell you that there's something in addition to Jesus because there's not. We want to add works to it. We want to add things to it. We want to be legalistic about it. But it's just Jesus. Steadfast, stable, Sometimes stable churches are not the most popular churches in town because they're going to speak the truth. They're going to call sin sin. Not in an ugly way, but we're not going to compromise just because we stand on truth. I'll tell you there are times when when uh, we make people mad here because of the stand on the scripture about church membership. You don't have to be you know, it's not hard to be a member. You have to be saved and you have to be scripturally baptized and not living in open sin. Now All of us are sinners saved by grace, but I'm talking about open sin, where it's obvious. There are a lot of people who think, well, the church is, it's not for me. Well, folks, I don't know how you can say that if you say you love Jesus Being separated for the last several weeks has reminded me of how important it is to be a church that loves each other, a church that stands together, a church that overlooks each other's faults and forgives people. If you can't forgive, you can't be a part of a church. But the problem is, if you can't forgive, that means that something's wrong with your walk with Christ because he forgave you of all these things. He says, now you need to forgive other people. But I come back to the very basic premise. A church is a body of baptized believers. That's about as simple as you can say it. Some of you have never believed in Jesus. Jesus. What are you talking about? I've heard Jesus all my life. You've never trusted Him. You've never stepped across the line and put your faith in Christ. And if you've never done that, you can do that now. You have to repent of your sin. Repentance means you know what? I'm headed to hell. I'm headed down the wrong path of life, I'm headed away from God. I'm separated from God. I realize that. I changed my mind. Lord, I want to come to you. I want to live for you. I I want you to forgive me of my sin. You ask God to forgive you, and he does. And then you, you, you base that on something. What did God do? He sent Jesus, who lived a sinless life. The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. In fact, he gave his life willingly so that God put our sin on him. And he died for our sin. But he rose again, conquering death. So when you place your faith, your trust in Jesus, you're saying, Jesus, I believe with all my heart, you are the only way to heaven. You're the only way to God. You're the only one that I can trust to take me and to forgive me and to save me. And so it's a pretty simple commitment. At least the prayer is simple. The commitment is real. I ask you, God, to forgive me I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe he rose again. I believe he can save me right now. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask you to save me, forgive me, come into my life. I want you to be the boss. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to live for you with all I know how I give you my life. And the scripture tells us that when you do that, instantly, instantly, God washes you clean in Jesus then the first thing you do is to let people know. And that public declaration or letting people know is baptism. Baptism doesn't save you any more than going in a garage makes you a car. It does not save you. But, But it is an act of obedience. God wants you to do it. To show other people the burial and resurrection of Jesus. The old way of life is gone. You have a new life in Christ. Some of you need to be baptized. And then some of you need to join a body of believers. Not be a permanent guest. You're part of the body of Christ. Get with a local body of believers and put yourself there. I'm going to lead us in prayer. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, whatever commitment is on your heart, would you make it right now while we pray? Heavenly Father, I pray for those even now who need to commit their life to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you will show them clearly how you love them, how you will forgive them, how you will save them. I pray for those who've been putting off being baptized for whatever excuse or reason. And Lord, you set the example for us. You walked 30 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist, to be immersed. And I pray that people would be obedient. I pray that people would take their church membership seriously. And Lord, realize that even when they come, they are an encouragement to other people. Help us to be cheerleaders for each other. Help us to pick each up, pick each other up when we're down and to pray and to support and to encourage and comfort. Thank you, Lord, for a church like Southcrest. It's not perfect, but it sure is a sweet place. The sweetest place this side of heaven, in my opinion. Lord, I thank you for this place, and I pray that people would be committed to being a cheerleader here. So Lord, right now I lift up those who are making commitments to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to five 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 eight eight eight. 888 You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.